Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 366. This program is dedicated in loving memory of my dear uncle, Absalom Jacobson, who passed on the 18th of Menachem Av. Happy Rosh Chodesh El. We're entering the last month of the Hebrew year called El. In Chesidus it says this is the last month as in making a cheshben, chedesh ha-cheshben, the month of accounting. We take an accounting, introspection, soul-searching of everything that happened the past year. And a chedesh ha the month when we prepare for the new year. Which in a month from now will be Rosh Hashanah. El is packed with so much power and energy explained in so many different places as not just a month of preparation, but it itself is a time when there are opportunities and abilities to reach the deepest parts of our soul and the deepest parts of God in connecting, in repairing, in reconciling, in improving every aspect of our lives. So chassidus applied to the month of El obviously has so much potency. Let me begin, of course, the famous Moshal of the Alter Rebbe and Lukut Tater and Re'ei, where he asks the question, why is El, since in El you have radiating the Yud Gimel Midas the 13 attributes of divine compassion and mercy, and that's what defines a Yom Tov. Why is a Yom Tov a holiday, a special day? It's not just chosen, because on that they radiate a particular divine revelation. So here we have a whole month of a divine revelation. So why is it not holidays? Why is it Yimei Achel? Weekdays. And the Altarebbe answers with the Moshe of the Melech Basad, that before the king enters the palace, which here in the moral is entering Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the high holidays, he goes into the field. He travels to the field before he gets to the to the palace. And El is the field. You meet the king without all the formalities that you would need to get into the palace. That we need on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And El, it's like going to God. God is in the field together with us, and everyone can go over to him, and he grants their requests. The saver upon him Yafis with a smile. So El essentially is experiencing the divine on the terms of the weekdays. Not in holidays. That's precisely its power. Now, why is Melech Basada? Why Yudgimel Midas Because this is the period when Moshe Rabbeinu goes back up on the mountain for the third time. Remember, Moshe received the Teda, the Jewish people received the Teda, Moshe on the mountain Sinai, on Shavuos, which was 49 days, 50 days after they left Egypt. Following that, Moshe stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that period, unfortunately, the Jewish people built the golden calf. Moshe comes down on the 17th of Tammuz and sees what happened. He shatters the tablets, goes back up on the mountain, another 40 days. Those 40 days end on Rosh And he's not successful in his beseeching God for forgiveness. So he goes back a third time. There are two opinions whether he went back the first day of Rosh Chodesh the second day of Rosh Chodesh And 
This begins the third period, which will be successful, will conclude 40 days from now. And Yom Kippur, when he comes back with the second tablets, Hashem, God says, Salachti kidvarecha. I've forgiven them as you've spoken. And one of the things, the powers and revelations that happen during this time is the revelation of the 13 attributes of compassion in Pasha Kisisa that God reveals to Moshe during this period. So El is Chedesh HaRachimim. In addition to being the month of Cheshbon, countability, month of accounting, and Achon, preparation, it's also Chedesh HaRachimim, month of compassion. Above all, the compassion from God to each one of us. But it's a compassion, as, as the Al-Tareb explains, on our terms, meaning even in our weekday lives, not just our Shabbos and Yontif, even as we're dressed in the garments of the field, meaning our work day, and garments here not just physically, but also psychologically and emotionally and figuratively, even on those terms, this is not a, time of, this is not a formal time. You can meet the, meet the king, it's like meeting the king in the street. But here's the field representing the work and many different things. So that's the special quality of this month. And as we enter it, we begin that preparation, we begin that counting, and begin blowing shefer every morning to remind us. And El has many different customs. The book I put together, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays, was meant actually to help us go through these days of El and then the days of Tishrei, 60 days from Rosh Chodesh El till Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan, the months of El and Tishrei. And if I may say so, it's a very good book in helping one go through this journey. It includes all the customs and the mitzvahs and different historical facts and insights and exercises to really maximize and tapping into this powerful energy of El. So, we'll talk about different angles of it. This is the overview. And above all, it begins with us, each one of us, having the opportunity. The doors are open now. So no matter what is going on in your life, whatever has happened in your life, this is a time of opportunity to be able to repair, to mend, to correct, to improve. For everyone, El has this power. So the first question, how do we enter the month of El? What Avedis should we be doing? Well, we enter firstly with the mindset, the heart set, understanding the specialness of this month. Awareness is the key to everything. If you don't know what you're experiencing, it's very hard to maximize it, very hard to actualize it. So the first thing is understanding we're in this special month. Secondly, it's a month of tshuva. Chassidus explains this tshuva tata. It's a lower level of tshuva, preparing us for the tshuva ilah, the higher level, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. What does tshuva mean? Tshuva means to return. Return clearly tells you that you have some place that you may have wandered away from. You may have abandoned, you may have betrayed yourself, others, God, your own dreams and promises. So El is a time to return to return to your divine essence, to return to, to return to your divine purpose. But Shuvatata also includes cleaning up your act. Before you return to the core beauty, sometimes there's dust that has gathered or other obstacles or impediments. So that's why it's important to have that accounting, to look at things that may have been done better, to repair that which needs to be repaired, 
this may be asking for forgiveness. So even though we do this later before Yom Kippur, but you begin now. And in general, preparing for for a new year with a new energy that will enter and focusing on the details, not just in general, details. So it's a good idea to actually either begin a journal or you can use the 60 days or write some paper where you sit down, here are the things I want to work on, here are the things I would like to have for the new year. By defining it in details, it begins to make it real and concrete. More specifically, what it says in the Svarim, this is a month where we increase in davening, in tefillah, in prayer. We increase in tzedakah, in charity. And in general, anything that brings us closer to others and brings us closer to God, to Hashem. Regarding Teda, so there is the increasing in Teda also. But in some places it says, those that learn Teda take off a little time, of, learn Teda all the time, take off some time from Teda to add Tachnunim in prayers. But basically in the three Kavim of Teda, Vedic Mils, Chasodim is what we increase in. They're all hinted to, alluded to, into the acronyms, the different acronyms of El. So El has many acronyms. And they go on, the Rebbe explains that they have them against Teda, Vedic Mils, Chasodim. They correspond to Teda, Vedic Mils, Chasodim. And there's also one for tshuva, and there's one for gu'ula, the five acronyms of El. What is the connection of El to prayer, and why is prayer the service of the heart? Rabbi Jacobson, I would be most appreciative, this is part of the question, if you could please explain something you've discussed in previous programs about the spiritual spa, spa being an acronym for study, prayer, action, you, you explain the study prayer action idea as cognitive, emotional, and behavioral. While I understand the connection between study and cognition, meaning the mind learning and studying, and action and behavior, I'm less clear about the prayer-emotion connection. Please explain the emotional nature of prayer beyond the fact that it is a service of the heart. I thank you for this elucidation and for giving over this in meaningful and practical ways. May you and yours, including your listeners, be blessed with a good and sweet year, blessed with the ultimate goodness and sweetness, the final redemption. Okay. So, to answer the question, that the Gemara does say, prayer is Ezuhu Aveda Shabalev, Ezuhu Aveda Shabalev, what is the service of the heart? Zuhit Fila. This is prayer. So, we need to understand what that means. Prayer is not just lip service. It's not just saying words. Prayer is emoting, connecting. It's like when you love somebody, it's an expression of love. Just as Teda, learning Teda is an expression of the mind, you're studying God's Teda, and through which you bond with, so to speak, God's mind. Behavioral is when you're, you do kind acts. Action, you bond with God's behavior. Mahur Acham, just as God is compassionate, so you should, Afata Racham, so you too should be compassionate. So there's a third element. We know we have a mind, we have behavioral, our actions, and we have our hearts. What do we love? So the Torah tells us there's a mitzvah, Vavatim Hashem Hashem We should love God. How do you love something you can't tangibly relate to? So tefillah is the service of the heart. Tefillah is speaking to God as you speak to someone that you love. 
the appreciation, the thank yous, the requests. That's what we do in davening. On a deeper level, we call Avedis Atfila, people chassidim who sat and davened for hours, is because they're having an emotional experience. It's personal. Learning should also be personalized, but learning is still more academic and it's with your mind. And you take the learning and then apply it to tefillah, to your heart, then you have the full picture. Every person has to do this according to their level. And that's indeed what we do on, on uh, El. What did Moshe do on the mountain? He prayed. The 40 days when he received the Torah, he was learning with Hashem. Hashem was teaching him. But after that, when he went back to pray for forgiveness, he was praying. He was crying. He was beseeching. He was begging God. You have a relationship with the people. Forgive them. You love them. They love you. We'll deal with the mistakes and we have to correct them. So El, therefore, in emulating that, is beseeching and crying out. People need help. We, each of us have our challenges. We have our issues. So learning is bonding with God's mind. Prayer is talking to your father. Talking to your, to your father, the Avinu B'Sheba Shamayim, Avinu Malkeinu. That's the general point. In Chassidus, there's, of course, elaboration along my modem that talk about what tefillah is, the four different rungs in davening, like climbing a ladder, a journey, and the different aspects of what the Hizbanus, what a person should contemplate on. Okay. We've even dedicated previous programs months ago to davening, one of the lost art of davening to teach and to learn each one of us to learn how to daven. Learning, we, 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 it's easier to access, but davening requires work. That's why it's called Aveda. And I hope to go back to that because this is something that really is a necessity for myself, for all of us, to really develop our emotional EQ, our emotional intelligence in connecting with God and with ourselves, with our souls. So another person writes, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson, I put on my tefillin and daven every day for the things I need and for good blessings for our community. But I don't always see the answers in a revealed manner. What can we do differently while praying during El and the rest of the year in order to take advantage of the king being in the field in order that we can see the positive results of our prayers in actuality? Thank you, and may you have a sweet and successful new year. The simplest is to simply be machavin and intent to what Moshe Rabbeinu was doing during this time. Now, we can't compare ourselves to Moshe, but in chapter 42 in Tanya, the, Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe already explains, there's a Moshe within each one of us. So we have the power that Moshe had, which was to cry out to God. Everybody has their cheta egel in some way. Not literally, God forbid, as idolatry, but the things that distract us from God, the things we worship, Gold, silver, copper, money, power, influence, covered, honor. And we are distracted. So we learn from Meshe Rabbeinu what, to, what the intention is. What the intention is that whatever happened the last 11 months of the year, since last Rosh Hashanah, we want to mend, we want to improve. It's like in any given situation, a relationship, marriage between spouses, from time to time, they have to sit down and look at it, be accountable, talk to each other. 
So really it comes down to that. It doesn't require necessarily whole sophisticated tools. Just speak from your heart sincerely with integrity. These are the things that speak to God and God responds to. And yes, Melech Basada. God is like a king in the field, more accessible, less layers, and even in an informal way, meaning we don't need to have all the preparations as we will need when we go to Hashem Yom Kippur, we're going inside the palace. So it's a whole Yom Tov, Mitzvah Shefer and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is a fast day and all the other things we do these days. Now it's more, it still needs your attention. You can't ignore the king in the field, but he's in the field, so it's more accessible in the weekdays. So it's hard to give people specifics because every one of us have different needs, but just be sincere about your issues. And, and uh, I mean, every day davening should be with the right intention, but El has more power. And it has just that stimulation that comes from knowing that we're concluding the year, we're preparing for a new year. And the, and the more you bring yourself to it, the more God responds. It's like, that's how it is with all situations. Asurus of the Latata, you take an initiative. Also good idea is to take on new resolutions, something that you haven't done before. So you want to go over to the king in the field. The more you can bring yourself there, the more the response will be. Now, does God respond even if we don't do anything? Yes, but then have less preparation, less chance, or less in a revealed way. So the more you can do in a sincere way, that's the key to everything regarding the prayer and preparing for the king in the field. The next question was, what does it mean the king is in the field? Isn't God the king always omnipresent and everywhere simultaneously? How do we know that he is in the field if we can't see or hear him or talk directly to him and get an answer? Well, the general answer to, ask to, uh, to pose it with another question is this. We know God fills the entire world, His glory. So why do we go to a shul? What's so special about the Kaisla Maravi, the Western Wall? Or what's so special for that matter about um, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, or Shabbos and Yontif? God is everywhere all the time. Well, the way God created existence for us to be able to have a relationship with Him what Chassidus explains, he did it through concealing the divine presence. So though the essence of the divine is everywhere all the time equally, but on a revealed level, it's concealed. And But there are different levels of concealment. There are times when it's completely concealed. There are times when some layers are removed so it's easier to access. When you go into a shul, there are less layers, so it's easier it still needs work because the concealment is still there. The same thing Shabbos and Yont, the same thing in the month of Elul. Certain layers are removed that make it easier to connect to. So this is part of the process of a real partnership. If Hashem did not create those layers, we would be completely overwhelmed and never be able to exist in the first place. That's how the Arizal explains the Tzimtzum. Because the light, the divine energy, the divine consciousness was so intense, it encompassed everything. It's like a teacher who's so brilliant, there's no room for a student. And you need to have that the students have space. To have space, you need to have these concealments. But then there are times where Hashem says, I'm going to remove some concealments to make it easier. That's why it says about Dasar Simei Tshuva. Hashem it says, 
besiege God when he's found. Call out to him when he's close. So what do you mean? He's always close. From his end, he's always close. But in those 10 days, in the, in, in the broader sense, the days of El, there are less layers. When there's less layers, it's easier to access. It's like thinking of a, so think of a, you have a boss, the head of the company. But he's not available, he's not accessible. To get to him, you have to go through all kinds of middlemen. But there are times, let's say a day when he has a simcha, a day when he opens, opens doors and says, today you can access me. So you still need to access, but there are less middlemen. There are less layers in between, just as an example. And that's what this time period is, and that's what the king is in the field. There are less layers, but still it's in the field. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, there are less layers, but there's more preparation needed because the giluim are higher, and you need to blow shefer, you need to do the other things that the Yom Tov requires of us. El, it's in the field. Are we supposed to wear special clothes or perhaps our nice suits during the month of El? Because if the king is out in the field greeting us, we should probably dress nicely in the proper way that we should, that we would when meeting royalty. I'm not sure if it matters in the big scheme of things, but I bought some brand new socks and I will wear them for the first time at Rosh El. That's nice. I've not seen anywhere that you have to wear special nice clothing. In general, a Jew and a human being in general should look nice, especially Mamleches Kain and Vigay Kaddish, the Gemara in Zvachim, the Rebbe sites, where a Jew is walking and uh, the Roman uh, prince got off his horse and helped fix his gartel because it was falling down. He says, because Mamleches Te'atam Tili, Mamleches Kain and Vigay Kaddish, someone that's from a kingdom of priests, and the holy nation used to look the covered litiferis. That's why you have the big day kahuna, the garments, the priestly garments, the covered litiferis for honor and for beauty, even externally. So that's a general rule. I've not seen that in L one has to do that specifically. I'm not saying you have to dress dafka not nicely, but when the king is in the field, that's exactly the point that even though the, the field workers, the farmers are working there and they're not dressed in their best garments, they're dressed in their war garments, that even there, God greets them. So obviously there has to be covered as much as possible. Whether one has to dress nicely, again, I've not seen it, it's an interesting thought, love to hear what others have to say about it. So I would argue that you don't need to do that, because that's why it's exactly why God is in the field. Like, God, like imagine the king suddenly coming unprepared to your workplace. So you, don't, you don't have to go run and, and change into a suit. First of all, it's not respectful. He's standing before you. Second of all, it's not needed because the king is coming to you on those terms. He knows where you are. On the other hand, of course, we have to behave in the nicest and most proper manner. So, But it's interesting. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can you please give an explanation of what the acronym of El Anila Dei Dividei means? Thanks. So one of the five acronyms that I mentioned before of El is the most famous one maybe, is Anila Deidi Vedeidili, from the book of Shira Shirim, Song of Songs. Literally means, I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. Now when you think about it, that's exactly the theme of El. Moshe is on the mountain, speaking to God, I am to my beloved, and I want my beloved to respond, to reciprocate. So essentially, it's the month of Psula is the sign, Virgo is the sign of uh, Elul, 
the month of relationships. It's one of the reasons that Abeim, quite a few of them, got married in the month of El. It's a month of relationships. And it's rooted in the relationship between the Jewish people and God, a marriage that happened at Matan Torah, at Sinai. The marriage was compromised when the Jews betrayed God. And the rest of the 40 days and the next 40 days were all to mend and repair a betrayal, an infidelity. So it's about relationships, about preparing the relationship, repairing and improving the relationship. So perfect. Yud Gimel Midas When you read Pasha Kisisa, and Moshe speaking to Hashem, you feel, you can feel the element of intimacy, like a real relationship. Now obviously physical relationship evolves from the relationship between man and God. But you see clearly in Pasha Kisisa how God and Moshe communicate. How Moshe says, show me your glory, show me your face. Hashem responding, Literally like two people in love. Like it says there, like Moshe spoke to Hashem like a person speaks to his friend. Now there's a passage that says, the other order. My beloved to me and I to him. So Chassidus explains that verse refers to the month of Nisan. Because in Nisan it worked the other way around. The Ebershta initiated. God revealed himself and took the Jews out of Egypt. And they reciprocated and responded. In Tishrei, like the letters Tishrei, Tovshin, goes backwards, Tovshin, from the Mamata Lamaila, that we initiate first. So that's the significance. There's obviously more to be said about it. Al Tadeb talks about it in the Kutateta as well. Beginning with Ani, initiating Ledeidi to my beloved in a beloving way, like we spoke before, Aveda Shabalev, love, and then God reciprocating. So, this is a good segue where a person writes the following Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I got married a few days ago. At my wedding, one of the guests casually mentioned that from the wedding day throughout the Sheva Brachas, the bride and groom are considered like a king and queen. I have a question. What is the source for this? And is this mere symbolism, or do we have the extra power and en- the extra power and energy to give blessings? As your monarch... <laughs> now he concludes. As your monarch for the week, I would like to proclaim the following edict into law. May Hashem send Mashiach right now and heal the world. May every Jewish person and righteous Gentile be blessed with abundance of parnosa. May anyone who is ill be healed immediately and dance out of the hospital. May the COVID pandemic end once and for all. May anyone who is looking for a shidduch find a shidduch right away with no obstacles. And may they have healthy children physically and spiritually in a safe and loving house to reside in, which can be a source of inspiration to the community. May everyone have opportunities to increase in acts of goodness and kindness. And may those acts of kindness give the Rebbe nachas and honor the Rebbe and his parents. May amazing Torah and Chassidus broadcasts, such as this one, be increased and many more people have a chance to watch and benefit from them. And last but not least, may the New York... (laughs) Okay, I'll read it because... May may the New York Jets football team win the Super Bowl. Sincerely and with love, King Moshe and Queen Chayarivka. 
Okay. The last line was a little, I guess, tongue-in-cheek, but amen to that. And absolutely, it's not a euphemism, it's not just a line. A king, a chasim kala, melech. The source for that is Pirkei de Rabbelozer, chapter 16. It says explicitly that a king is Damon Lamelech. If you look at the mimer of the Friedrich Rebbe that he said by the Rebbe's the Rebbe and the Rebbe Tzadchaim Mushka's wedding in the year 1928, Yudalit Kislev, he speaks clearly, Lechod Dedi, Likras Kala, Pnei Shabbos Nikablo, speaks about how Shabbos is called Kala the bride and also called Malkus of the queen. He cites a Zoyar, Chela Gimel, Zoyar, the third volume, 272b, because saying clearly that, that correlation. And also another Zoyar that's a king is not complete without his queen. The bottom line is that the king, a Chosun Kala, are compared to king and a queen in the literal sense of the word. Is it a king, a pi'alacha, like a king sitting on his throne? But it still has the kingly element, and that's why we honor a chasen kala. And thank you, therefore, very much for your blessings, because you definitely have special strengths. And Hashem should bless you with everything you blessed everyone else, plus more, rabinyan adayad, an eternal edifice built on the foundations of Teir and Mitzvah, as they are illuminated by the inner dimension of Teir in the, in the traditional blessing that the Rebbe gives in his letter to marriages and weddings. Okay, so it's very fitting, as I said, in the month of El, Anila Dei Dividei Dili, Chosun Kala. In truth, it says, about Jews in general, that they're Melochim Heim, or Bnei Melochim Heim. Sometimes it says they're kings, and sometimes they're children of kings. I cited before the verse, Va'atem Tili Mamleches, Kainim. A kingdom of priests, a kingdom. So Malchus. But especially Yuchasun Kala. Now, another segue, which is a strange segue, but let's go there as well. Someone writes about the housing crisis facing young couples. So, since we're talking about marriage, and see, so here's the question What can we do about the housing crisis so many of our young couples are facing today? Did the Rebbe ever advise newly married couples, couples on the best way to find a safe, affordable living space? In more detail, dear Rabbi Jacobson, one of the side effects of the COVID pandemic is a housing crisis. Very few homes are available for sale, and the few that come up on the market are severely overpriced, and bidding wars make them even more unaffordable to middle-income couples. I got married on August 1st, the 23rd of Menachemov, and we still haven't found an affordable home to buy. Even rentals are problematic because newly married couples don't yet have a strong credit history together. Landlords are not renting to them because they're afraid that due to temporary COVID rules, which prohibit evictions, renters might try not to pay the rent because a loophole might let them get away with it during the pandemic. My question is, has the Rebbe ever made suggestions or given newly married couples advice on the best way to find a safe, affordable living space. Thank you, and may Hashem bless that no Jewish person should ever have a, house, a housing crisis, and that every Jew should have a safe, affordable home to live in, which should be a base and a source of acts of goodness and kindness. Okay, very practical question, very important question. And you see, you see even in Crown Heights, 
In other places, there's been a big exodus. Many young people, can, because of affordable reasons, cannot afford a home, as you just described, and are moving to different communities. I'm not getting into the merits or not. Maybe that's a, a good thing. They can help build other communities all over. But regardless, I remember very clearly Tezvov Thomas, Tov Shemem Hey. That was 1985, where the Rebbe, before he spoke actually about the Sfarim, that was the first time the Rebbe started speaking about the, the Sfarim that was stolen from the library, the Rebbe gave a whole sicha, a very impassioned plea to landlords and to people who own homes to not gouge and to not overprice rents or sales and to make it easy for Jews to be able to buy or rent a home. Especially the Rebbe said in Kan Siva Sashem the neighbor of the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe, even more important. But it was in general a plea. I'm not going to go over the whole thing because I spoke about it a while back, but that's the bottom line. So we're talking about the Rebbe. The Rebbe spoke to everybody, speaking especially to those that control these prices. I don't recall who's seeing or hearing the Rebbe specifically telling a couple, maybe there probably are answers. I haven't found them or I haven't looked well enough if anybody has an answer that you're aware of that the Rebbe spoke about this to a couple or to anyone that I have not mentioned, please share it with me and I will be happy to share it with the audience for the benefit of everybody. But I will say, based on the, the common sense of the Rebbe's approach in general, that the Rebbe was both practical but also based on betachem. But the practical side is that obviously if you don't have the money, you can't pay for it. So the Rebbe would, in that type of case, and I'm, again, speculating, would advise a couple to speak to family, to speak to mashpim, to see if someone can help them, first of all, financially. And if not, to find something, if it's not in this area, another area. And when I say this, I don't mean necessarily chronites, wherever, depending on the, where the couple is living, and find something that's affordable. I don't know if there was ever any type of directive, some magical formula the Rebbe didn't usually work with that, and, or something more to go beyond your means and just do it and rely on God that you'll be able to pay your rent? I'm not sure if the Rebbe ever said that. We do know in the early 70s when the Rebbe established Shebro, which means Hevra, when Crown Heights was going through its own crisis, so the Rebbe encouraged and pushed the Jewish Community Council, Crown Heights, to buy buildings and to make affordable living. So then different programs actually helped young couples government subsidized rent, and they were able to afford with low rents and, um, and, and benefit from that. There's no question the Rebbe pushed that and encouraged it. So there are options like that. I don't know if they exist today and what form they exist, but that was definitely a great blessing, and those that were part of it deserve their credit for that, and making it easier until the couples get themselves on their feet and start building a parnasa. Above all, we want to bless everybody to have, make enough money to be able to buy or rent easily without having to strain themselves. And going back to the Rebbe's plea, and that everyone who's in a position, especially people who own real estate and own property or are landlords, should not torture and just squeeze a few more dollars out of our own brethren, brothers and sisters, especially when they're in a situation where they may not be able to afford it. We're not saying it shouldn't be charging, but not to overcharge and not to take advantage of the situation because there is a, uh, a glut or because there's such a great demand. On a practical level, we're all together. We should all be here for each other. It shouldn't be 
survival of the fittest, that every person is out just to take care of themselves and make their money, but we should be helpful, helping others. And I have heard also beautiful stories where people who are landlords or people who own property did give, did give uh, subsidies and did lower their rents, especially of couples or others who found it difficult and were able to do so, some of it deferring the rent later or even forgiving it. These, of course, are beautiful gestures, and especially in the month of El, when we add in tzedakah, could be done in a very respectful way. You don't have to go through, give someone or humiliate them. Here's a charitable donation. Now, one of the ways is maybe taka to lower the rents at least for this month or the next month. When we show such compassion, Hashem shows us compassion. So that's yet another suggestion. I've not seen it anywhere. It just came to mind as we're discussing this topic. Since Ashgacha Pratis, this is uh, this was sent to me now, this letter. So. That may be a very good suggestion to all of us. And in general, we all can use some more tenderness and kindness and goodness in our lives. And the best place is to initiate it, not wait until someone asks you just to initiate it. It's the most beautiful gesture, especially again in this month. Okay. So this is also the week of Pasha Shaftim. So I have a few questions I want to do about Sheftim, and then there's other questions. It's an interesting bunch of questions that keep coming in. This may be a good opportunity to, to let you know that we have a special website. Some of you may be familiar with it. I know many people do take advantage of it, but it's always good to mention again. My life, Chassidus Applied. So you have chassidusapplied.com, chassidusapplied.com, without the My Life is the name of the website. There you can, first of all, submit any question on the forum there completely anonymously. And all questions are accepted. There is a backup, but I'm getting to them. Someone just wrote to me, thank you for answering a question that I asked four months ago. I am getting to them. So please keep these questions coming. It's what makes this the lifeline of this program. You can also see all the previous episodes there. Now there are 365, already eight years that we've been doing this program. So you can see all the archives, they're all time-stamped. If you look at the YouTube version, which means you can go straight to the topic, they're all have the, they're listed, they're indexed. You can find your topic you're interested in. You can also do a keyword search for any topic you may be interested in. In addition, you have their other resources, including all the essays and the creative submissions that were submitted over the years, or six years of the contest as well as other resources. I do a daily Iron Base class. You're welcome to join. It's a live Zoom and YouTube class every morning, 9.30 a.m. New York time, Sundays, 10 a.m. And uh, please join. All the information can be found at chassidahsupply.com. Resources and commentary on other Maimarim, including Iron Base, Samach Vov, Tzadik Dalad, and more. And a, more array, and, a, and a fuller, wider array of resources. And please... Take advantage of it all at chassidahsupply.com. I should also mention, we survive on your support. This is a free program. A lot of work goes into it, research, and so on. So please, gener- please donate generously. Go donate there at chassidahsupply.com, especially in this month of Elul. Maybe you would consider a dedication for a loved one or a memory of someone, and a dedication either one program or several programs. And thank you in advance for that. So going to Shaftim now. Lessons from Shaftim. 
What are some practical applications today for Egla Arufa? So in this Pasha, we talk about the Egla Arufa. The Egla Arufa, let me explain what it is first, and then I'll read on this, this question. Egla Arufa was a particular type of offering that was brought, that if God forbid, somebody was found dead, killed, or dead between two cities, so in general, a city is responsible for its citizens if it's in the city itself. So the community needs to do tshuva and there's other things that one needs to do when something happens. What happens if it's between two cities? So the one that's closest to the city, that's closest to it, is the one that, so, speak, so to speak, bears responsibility. And a gilarufa was a, a carbon brought as a tikkun, as a, as a recovery, as a healing for that particular crime. So he's asking, what are the practical applications? Today we don't bring an Egla Rufa, like we don't bring other offerings. Does it mean if a teen goes off the derech, the entire community bears some responsibility? If a child is abused, does it mean the community should have done more to help prevent it? If the community didn't stop a case of child abuse what they, that they knew about, is the child entitled to financial compensation from the community? Okay. Well, these are definitely practical applications. Egla Rufa, as the Sefer HaChinuch says, and other places, Egla Rufa is not just the carbon, it's the, fact, the technical way that was done during the time of the Beis HaMikdash. For us, the lesson is very clear. It's a responsibility, yes, we're not just all alone. Like I mentioned, the community is responsible for each other, especially when the crime has been done. Now you could say, why is the community, they didn't do it? Because we are responsible for each other, even if we're not aware what does that mean? It means that we need to put in safeguards and we need to do all kinds of things to protect. Now, things happen. So then you have to take accountability. It's a very powerful statement. So obviously, if someone did the, did the abuse or someone else caused someone harm, of course they're accountable. But the community is also accountable. There's so many far-reaching lessons from that, especially in today's day and age, where people say, it's not my problem, I didn't do it, let someone else worry about it. It's not correct. Every community is responsible for those that live there. And even if someone comes to visit there, they're responsible to help and take care of them. We know what Midas Doim was. They were known for doing the exact opposite to visitors and guests. And it's just a beautiful sign of what the Torah teaches us to be, to be mentioned, to be accountable and responsible, not just for ourselves and our families and our immediate neighbors, but for the entire community, anything that happens. So yes, all these unfortunate events that we talk about today, we see abuse, we see children wandering off. So firstly, we're responsible to do whatever we can to, make, to prevent it, to allow and give people opportunity to go for help if they need to. If something is known to happen, to then address it properly and not cover it up, and not hide it behind the, under the carpet, or point fingers at other people. And the different events that have happened without going into details over the past years that have become more exposed than ever before, and not getting to what was going on in the past, only behooves us even more to be carrying responsibility and do things. So when you see organizations come up, you see individuals, starting something, or even on an individual volunteer basis, helping people, that's a sign of what we learned from the Egla Rufa. Taking responsibility, 
taking initiative, not waiting. I'm wondering, I was debating whether I should even mention this, but the heart-wrenching sicha. When Mrs. Lapine was so savagely murdered back in 1992, Tav just weeks before Chovzai Nodem, the sicha of the Rebbe, the Rebbe felt he took responsibility. The Rebbe was responsible, God forbid. But the Rebbe Shkuna said, And she came, Mrs. Lapine came to the Shkuna because the Rebbe is here. And such a thing happens. I mean, the words that were uttered then by the Rebbe were, I mean, unprecedented, shocking even. You could see the anguish, especially of that part, that in a sense, like, this is, I don't even say it's Michael, he said, the Rebbe's community. This is how we have to feel. We'd have to, we don't have to wait for such tragedies to happen. We have to be preventive and preemptive and do everything possible. So if anyone's listening to this, this is the most important message of all to share. And it's not an accident that Shaftim comes usually the beginning of El or middle of El, the first weeks of El. Because it's about responsibility. It's about accountability. That's one of the things we need to look at. So even if you're perfect, what about the things going on in your community? What about your neighbors? What about strangers even? We need to care and we need to do something about it. That's our responsibility, our collective and individual responsibility. And there's no words, stronger words that I could say toward that direction. Okay. About compensation, are we obligated? You know what? I would, I would say it the other way. We should do it willingly. I don't know if anyone can obligate someone to compensate someone that's been hurt unless the people who did the hurting or the school or the environment where it happened and they didn't protect, which of course is even more of a travesty. The community is responsible in general, but especially the places where we send our children, whether it's summer camp or day camp or schools or other environments, they're for sure. I mean, they're talking about you're sending them with, a, with knowing that they're adults that are supposed to protect them. So I would say that maybe a compensation fund should be made to help people like this, not necessarily because you're obligated or someone's suing you. You don't have to wait for that. To do it out of, out of our own goodwill. But that's not tave. Okay. The truth is I'd spend a lot more time talking about this because of the importance. But I think Mu'at Mahzik HaMeruba, I focused on it. And if need be, I'll talk about it some more. If anybody has further questions, wants to elaborate on it, this is a topic It's not just close to my heart, but it's also something that we carry great responsibility and I know in this program itself over the years, because of the discussions, different things have been addressed. And I feel my obligation to use this platform to bring to the surface and bring to the fore issues like this and be a voice for many of the voiceless that either don't have an opportunity or are, not, or are afraid to speak up. So please, if anyone's listening to this who has such issues and wants me to say something about it, please write to me and I will... Please, God will address it. How can we reconcile the teachings of Pasha Shaftim that prohibit idolatry and sorcery when we openly see groups of people worship a red chair? Ooh. Well, first of all, I don't know if I would compare 
You have to be very careful when you call things idolatry. It has to be halachically correct. Idolatry is a very severe sin. It's one of the three sins you're supposed to die for before committing it. Adultery and uh, idolatry and murder. Yadigval Yaver. So let's not, let's, be, let's not be loose with these words. When you use idolatry, it's a very severe thing. I know some people mean it figuratively. Now, when it comes to um, the, 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 the relevance, like another person wrote, what is the application of, idol, of idolatry today? So there are definitely parts in the world where there's actual idolatry. But even without that, there's the concept of Avedah Zara, Avedah Zara Loi. Avedah Zara means strange worship. So expression is in the Gemara, Chassidus talks about it, the Rebbe brings it. A service that's strange to him. So it doesn't always mean pure idolatry. It means something, you don't belong there. You have a God, serving God. Why are you going into other pastures? So in the broader sense of the word, it applies to things where a person is replacing God with some other, some other medium. And not necessarily sorcery or things like that, Generally, even when you worship money and you worship other people. So it's not idolatry in the halachic sense, but it's still idolatry in the figurative sense. Because the point is to have a relationship only with one Hashem. Not with any intermediaries and not with any other forces at all. At the end of the day, the real problem is you're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping a God that you're looking for in your image. When in truth, you should be worshiping a God who created you in His image. So that's the general application. Now, are there people who sometimes deify an object or something out of ignorance, usually not malicious? So that's, that's a matter of educating them, of teaching them. Now, we know, we understand there's the, the disagreements about different ways that are, and you know, I might as well at this point talk about another question that came my way. What is your opinion on those behaving as if the Rebbe is here in a physical body? So let me move to that. So interesting. I, I can move, obviously, I don't even want to put it in the same breath with the word idolatry. So in 770, they assigned the Rebbe to be chazan, a davening, because of his father's yard site. Is there a precedence for calling someone who is not in a physical body to be a chazan or to get an aliyah by the teda? How can the congregation answer amen if they can't hear the brachas? Someone says it's allowed because of the Talmud Rabbi Yehuda passed away but showed up every Friday night to say Kiddush for his family. And that, when the Alter Rebbe passed away, people were arguing over who gets to tevil his body. So he just stood up and tevilled himself. What are your thoughts? So my thoughts are that we have one Teda and one Halacha, and questions like this have to be asked by competent Rabbonim. Generally speaking, yes, a Gimel Tamas happened tragically. Api Halacha, something did happen. How you want to explain it, Baruchnius, how you want to explain God's intentions is another story. But there's a halachas involved around it. Now, do some people are Megashim? The Samach Sadiq writes in the, in the beginning, the first chapter in Sherish Mitzvah Vatfili, he says the Balshemta warned of being being Megashim in Yonim Kabbalah. Because sometimes you read it and you don't understand its subtlety, you can say speak about it in a very coarse way. Are there people Megashim, the concept of a tzaddik, that it says that tzaddik Rebbe is Gambi Misosim Kruim Chaim, that even in their death they're called alive, or the words by Yaakov Avinu, Mazari Bachaim, Afu Bachaim, that just as his children are alive, he's alive, and different expressions that talk about what a tzaddik's life is. 
Yes, there are people who misunderstand it, and they begashim it on their terms. In most of these cases, it's due to ignorance. It's due to being misled by people who don't understand the issues. And you have to address it. Many have very good intentions. I'm not going to go commenting on every specific situation. But yes, these certain things are going over the line where you start literally uh, physically applying to the Rebbe things that physically are not possible right now, like the chazan or the other things. I read it even though it's distasteful to me because I know it's on people's minds, but I think the approach has to be not to go to war where you now you have two parties, as if one party is completely holy and so on. It's more of an educational thing, and I think through a loving approach and through living, being a living example of kindness and teaching Chassidus properly what elokus means and what Ruchnius is, you can get a better sense of these ideas. Is the Rebbe's present but Ruchnius here? We believe that Kedusha Le'ezazim and Kema. We have the direct sources. When you have the direct sources, it says so. Famous story that the Friedrich Rebbe brings in his first Maimer, Tafresh Pei, that he was a little child and he saw his father standing by the table of the Rebbe Marash as if it was when he was there and was crying and was standing there. And he says, even his table, even his chair, even his very, his belonging, his furniture, all carries the Kedusha. But that does not physicalize the Rebbe himself. It means the Kedusha remains there. So these things need to be explained properly, and when they're not, yes, people, especially children, especially people who don't understand or immature, can suddenly deify something they shouldn't be deifying. Because it's not, I believe, it's not coming from a place of, the, of knowledge, I don't know if you can start comparing it to any of the, the terms in this week's chapter and so on. You can see if it, some of it is inappropriate, some of it is halachically inappropriate. How to correct it? Unfortunately, it's, it's become something that is like almost a polarized situation. You know, my approach is, what should I say? Try to educate, try to inform, try to inspire, try to share sources. And the more you do that, at least you're sticking to the sources and not everyone coming up with their own theories, whatever they'd like to th- th- theorize. And um, so there's uh, both sides to it. Yes, the Rebbe is with us. But we still say, as the Rebbe said about the Friedrich Rebbe, while also saying that the Friedrich Rebbe's presence is with us. So these are, need a lot of chassidus to explain what this means, and so on. The Ebershter is also here with us. But we're not megashim the Ebershter. We don't turn the Ebershter into a physical thing. He's with us more than anything else, because God is everywhere. Just to use as an example. So getting back to the topic, another person asks on the Pasha, hello, hello Sunday night rabbi. The Pasha gives loopholes for people to not have to join the army and fight a war if they're newlyweds, if they just built a home, or if they planted a vineyard. So what, stops, what would stop anyone from planting a vineyard, even a tiny one, so they could skirt their responsibilities to help protect the land? Sorry, I can't help you. I have to go water my grapes. Good luck fighting the Philistines. I'll have some wine ready for you when you get back. Yeah, so what stops someone from exploiting the different exemptions from going to war? Well, what stops anyone from doing anything in Torah? You know, people can do things that others don't see. So number one, we trust that people will behave according to the laws. If they don't, and someone's aware of it, so there are, there are laws. If someone indeed did something was just not really planting a vineyard only to do it for that purpose, there are halachas around this. 
You bring them to Rav, you bring them to Bezdin or a Sanhedrin, and they determine the situation. Sometimes you can't really prove it, so it could be they actually did build it. Let's say someone wasn't going to plant a vineyard, but they plant one and they take care of it. Because, let's say that's the reason, but the bottom line is they did do one. So there are Svarim that talk about this, and in general accountability, one has to be accountable, and if not, the Teda has its guidelines how someone else can perhaps prosecute or bring up an issue of this nature. But I appreciate the question. Okay. Let's see, what else are we going to cover here? Building rockets to travel into outer space. This, in the last few weeks, two of the wealthiest men in the world built rockets and successfully launched themselves into space. Even though all of space, our solar system, and the universe is all part of the physical creation by God, is, is, it, is it fair to, to say that taking a flight to leave our Earth represents man's desire to leave the physical world as we know it for a more spiritual existence and therefore the zeitgeist of our time is ripe for Mashiach? Interesting thought. Another person writes, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, has the Rebbe ever made any statements about the landing on the moon or whether it was a good idea or a bad idea to launch rockets into space? So I'll combine both of these questions. I don't know if their intention is a spiritual one, but the mere fact that human beings are curious. They raise their eyes to heaven. So some people raise it that the Pesach continues and see and behold who created all of this. But some people have the curiosity because the human spirit is curious. It's like a flame. It's always looking up. And even space travel all came to satisfy one thing, curiosity. Is there someone out there? What's out there? So there's a certain element, yes, that you can learn from that, the human spirit of transcendence. But we need to also recognize that transcendence has to be directed toward positive ends. So the fact that there's something like this happening, you can learn positive lessons from it. You could also say they're wasting their money. Maybe they should spend their money more to, dis- to eliminate famine or uh, poverty. But it's their money. But there's always positive lessons to be learned from it. And indeed, the Rebbe did. In Tovshin Chavtes, when they landed on the moon, the winter of that year, 1969, or would have been, yeah, 69. And then the summer again, both times that Rebbe spoke, the first landing and the second landing. And he spoke, and the second time was Shabbos Chazen, Dvarim, I think the first time was Vayigash, who also corresponded to a Pegisha. There was to be a Pegisha with Chabad, bringing college students for a Shabbos. And often the Rebbe would speak something about science, current events, contemporary events. So both times the Rebbe learned lessons from rocket travel, from space travel. One lesson was about a rocket, which I'm not going to go into right now, how rockets work and how they travel and so on. And the second one was about life on other planets. So generally you see from that that the Rebbe learned lessons from it and wrote about it and spoke about it. So there's always lessons to be learned when human beings achieve any feat, especially one of this nature. So overall, yes, there's a, there are positives in this that can be learned from. And above all, the human search for, for, for what's out there. Ultimately, what's out there, God. You're looking for God, but sometimes it's couched or expressed in different words. Okay.
Let's do a follow-up. We'll do a this question. And... Um, The follow-up is about vaccines. Never goes away, this issue. We're all hoping and praying that this magefa, this unshikanish, should come to an end. I am submitting this for a friend, someone writes. This question concerns the COVID vaccine. My understanding is that you recommend following your doctor's advice. Unfortunately, there are some rabbis saying one should not vaccinate. A rabbi in Israel who heads the Chabad Bezdin and is considered a top halachic authority for Chabad in the Holy Land, wrote the following in a letter. The need to be vaccinated isn't elective, but mandatory according to the Teda. Do not be clever with all sorts of different and strange opinions that have no basis in reality. My question is twofold. Do you agree with this, Rabbi? And if so, can you see a way of making similar statement or perhaps encouraging people to get vaccinated? I'm not going to disagree with the rabbi. He has his full entitled to say his uh, status opinion. And you could ask Mehechen Dantuni what his sources are. There are different rabbis of different opinions. There are rabbis actually came out against vaccines. There are rabbis who leave it optional to ask the doctor. I quote, and I'm not bringing it, I'm not a Pesach, a rabbi that's ruling. So this applied is where I'm coming from. And I'm quoting the Rebbe. The Rebbe said to listen to doctors. This is a medical question. This isn't a spiritual question. Just like if a person has an issue with their heart, God forbid, or with their blood, or with their, or their liver, or with their kidneys, or diabetes, you go to a doctor. If the doctor, whatever reason you feel you want to get another opinion, get a second opinion. And if they're disagreement, get a third. They follow two out of three. This is the Rebbe's general approach. So the rabbis that rule, each one has that right, and I'm not going to use this platform in any way to agree or disagree. That's not my role. I'm telling you what I have heard and always heard, and that's the approach that makes most sense. Now, can a doctor be wrong? Of course he could be wrong. He's a human being. Can a doctor be bought off and bribed? Of course. There's a lot of money in pharmaceuticals today, and, in the, and doctors are paid and so on. Of course. But still, the Torah says, nitnus Maybe that's why it needed a shuz, because there was a havamin. It shouldn't be that way. Why? Because first of all, God's a healer. But you could say also, l'chiduda at least, that maybe because doctors are humans and mortals. How could you give them the power to heal? I mean, obviously God is the healer. But to give them the power to be God's agent, they can make mistakes. So the Torah says, Nitin Rishus, And the Rebbe understood that doctors can make mistakes and doctors can be bought off. And yet, that's what the Torah tells us. You could also say, going to Arav. Arav could also be Meshuchet. Arav can be bribed. That's why you have to find, try to find honest Rabbanim. And if one doesn't work, go to another. And listen to two out of three. That's the world in which we live, and we have to follow Torah. If each of us becomes a doctor in our own right, you can do the research, and you're entitled to. But we're not doctors. How many times the Rebbe wrote letters? You're not a doctor. Don't parkezich in the diagnosis and the details. Do what the doctors say. That's how the Ebishter set, set it up, and that's how the Torah directs us. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy in the vaccines. I am not going to go into it. I've read, I've read and heard all different sides of it. Do I know who's right? No, I don't know, because I'm not a doctor. And even if I was a doctor, maybe doctors are also... Um, maybe it's a mystery for everybody. We see it's not been so simple. 
But, but then at the same time, the Torah is practical. It's telling us what we do. So we have to go with what is told to us and have the betochen that the Ebershter will protect once we follow what he says we should do. Okay. We'll conclude with the Chassidus question, which is a series of a bunch of questions that have come over, come in, that have been submitted over time. And really the question is, do we really exist? Or are we just programmed to think we exist? Is there a mimer by the Rebbe Rashab that discusses this? If so, can you give a brief synopsis? Thank you. Different people have written similar questions in different language. There's an allusion in some memorandum of the Rebbe Rashab we don't re- that we don't really exist. We only think we exist because godliness is concealed. But from God's true perspective, there's nothing but God. My question is, if we don't really exist, then how is it possible for us to sin? Or to do mitzvahs for that matter? In order to commit a physical act, whether good or not so good, don't we have to exist first? Okay. Another, if, there, if there's nothing except for God and we're only programmed to think that we exist from our perspective, but from the true perspective there's nothing but God, then is it fair to say we are really part of God? And if so, why don't we have godly powers such as the powers to create through Dibur speech? Why can't we say, let Mashiach be revealed now and through our powers of Dibur it will happen? And there's some other questions in that vein, which I'm going to do this in two parts. Let's do part one now. So yes, this is a, f- a famous question. How do we know we exist? Maybe it's all a dimyon, an illusion. So the Rebbe Marash in Amayim Amit Kamoich Etofresh Chavtes, which is 1869, says, how do we know we exist? Maybe it's all an illusion. So he brings two proofs. One is because the Pasuk says, The Torah. God gave us a Torah. The Torah says God created heaven and earth. That's a proof that it exists. Second proof he brings from the Gemara Sanhedrin that distinguishes between a magician, a magician's sleight of hand, and an actual sorcerer who does something, is able to create something. So the first is called Achizah Sanayim. Meaning just it's a sleight of hand. It's a ability to, like an optical illusion. The other is actually punished. You're not allowed to do sorcery. So he says, if a world doesn't exist, how can you distinguish between an illusion and someone actually do something? That's also an illusion. Everything is an illusion. So both, interestingly, are proofs from Teda. Of course, you could say, how do you know that Teda exists? Well, that's the assumption Teda is Emmas. But it's interesting how he explains it. In other words, he's not explaining it because you touch a table, that's why it exists. Because the Torah says it exists. As the Rebbe once spoke at a Fabrengen, it was a Tav Shemem Beis, Vayachal He was saying, when you ask a child, how do you know there's a behemoth? How do you know something? So he says, because Rashi said, so he never saw a cow. Rashi says there is. The Rebbe then turned and pointed a finger to a child standing right near me, happened to be my brother, and said, how do you know there's a world? And the Rebbe continued and said, On the deeper level, what says in Chassidus, in Shaykhudvamunah, starting in Shaykhudvamunah, the second part of Tanya, and the Rebbe Rashab does elaborate, as do other Maimonim, that everything existence is only Dvar Hashem. Should the Dvar Hashem, should God's breath, should God's words cease to be, the entire existence would cease to be. So in truth, all of existence is Elikus. 
And it's only ilam nit la'ayin liris, he says in chapter 3 there. If the eye could see, existence would cease to be. All you'd see is godliness. But if you look closely, it doesn't say there's no existence. It says existence is godliness. That's its true nature. But the Rebbe has a whole sikha, Mishpotim Tov Shem when he speaks at the end of chapter 4 in Shaykh that God's symptom was not just a concealment, and in truth there's nothing there, because that would ask the questions, so what are mitzvahs? And what are we accomplishing when we say we reveal godliness? And Sadiqim who don't have the concealment, what, do they have any avoda? And the answer he says is because the Alta Rebbe says, Simpson Nikra Kalim. When God concealed himself, or concealed the divine energy, we should say, it's an actual, it created Kalim, it's an actual Mitzis. The Simpson itself is a Mitzis, the concealment itself. So existence does exist. Yes, it's true on that side of the curtain, God sees, sees it all. So from God's point of view, nothing was concealed. But from our point of view, there's a true concealment. And therefore, from God's point of view, there's also something really there. Because he actually concealed, he actually created Hain Hain Vuresov. It's God's power. Only, only from our, but it's the power of concealment. So from God's point of view, it's just another power. It's like two forces. It's like a chacham, a wise person, speaks or is silent. His silence is also him. But silence is also reality. It's not just the absence of words. So the concealment is also reality, and therefore there's a true existence. Put it in simple terms, the same God that is everywhere, omnipresent, and is the essence of all of existence, chose to make something exist. And the point in Shariah Ramun is that nothing exists on its own. What's the whole point? Just to tell us that God is everything. To tell us that don't think that you are self-made, that you have any value of your own. Your whole value is because God gave you value. But once God gives you value, there is a true value, there's true existence. But is that's the brief uh, summary of it, and we'll talk about it more next week. Okay, my friends, this has been My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 366. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone should have a revealed way. It should be a very good and go into the new year in the best possible way, in every possible part of our lives. And ultimately, the most important bracha, the gula, mitis vashlema. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.